Every time I hear you guys say co-pilot for docs, I hear dogs. Mm -hmm. I get very excited that somebody would have made that and then realize it is not for dogs. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 426 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm the miscellaneous programmer. I'm Sam and I do art, I guess. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is July 28th, 20 Jubilee. Uh, before we get started, we have a warning there's going to be profanity in this show. And we'd also like to thank our recurring supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net, whose money we have grabbed. So good. You yeah. may have noticed also that when Seth said eighth, he also actually pronounced the silent P that's in there. The, mm -hmm. the there's a because the eight, you know, eight has a lot of silent letters in it, and a lot of people forget actually that there's a P in there too. It's yes. so silent. G P T H. Yeah, yeah it's, it's so silent you often don't even write it, you know. But mm -hmm. it is technically there. Now, what you may not have noticed is that also when I said that it, I actively farted, you know, mm -hmm. in the background. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which is different from passive farting, which it's kind of like a sonar radar mm -hmm. kind of a thing, you know. Uh, is <laughs> Wait, hold on. I have many questions. No, I, <laughs> I, I do too. So one of them I, uh -huh. I, which I just want to get out, which is this, the idea that farting could be a part of language is just hilarious. But I want to, I just want to, I want to knock that aside real quick to get to the question of uh, mm -hmm. of passive versus active farting. To ask the mm -hmm. question: Is farting ever? Passive. Yeah, I think if you like active? if you like cough and accidentally fart at the same time, that's probably that's probably passive. So like, or like maybe while you're sleeping. Accidental, sort of what you're talking about. I'm, I'm talking about active, meaning like you've chosen a strategic time to deploy it to to emphasize a point that you're making, like in speech, like the word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got you. I'm here. For that. I, I I thought you meant just like conscious versus unconscious, like like because you know how you can like actively choose to breathe and like, but if you don't pay attention, now you're just breathing and it's fine. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, it's a difference between doing something strategically versus sort of thoughtlessly. Gotcha. You know. Yeah. Uh, I don't gotta, think you know, I don't think farts just happen like breathing does. You know, like I think they do. Because you got peristalsis just happening constantly. Your they're, well, yeah, they're trying to happen, but I feel like we – or is it because farts are so taboo that we've all over our lifetimes developed the ability to – It was just clenched, man. Always trap it Ugh. until we consciously decide to release it. Yeah, I think much like aliens, we've all decided let's not talk about farts and pretend like it's not happening. That's you know, a that's, good pivot, Seth, because yeah. the alien hearings were this week and – It was pretty cool. It was great. Did we learn anything? There were yeah. So it was. I'll talk about this a little a little bit. I've give been following this give this this uh, UFO news ever since David Grush spoke a couple of months ago, and I've read everything I could. I read this great book by Leslie Keen called it's called like UFOs, uh, something like pilots, generals, and military something something. It's just like all re uh, military people talking about stuff that they've encountered and corroborated with like radar data and stuff. But the long and short of it is. There's all kinds of wild shit flying around in the sky, just flying circles, or in some case, squares around our, like, fighter jets and stuff, uh, zipping up into on, space. Now it's on a congressional in. record. That's the thing yeah. that's different. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not just a bunch of randos on the History Channel being yeah, like- Yeah, it's Angels. these two respected veteran pilots and a high-ranking military intelligence official um, 
And they they went under oath and they basically like laid out the case and they're like, this is real. This is happening. It's been happening for a long time. Um, there's still a ton of like classified stuff that they cannot talk about. So there's like more stuff coming down the pipe where they're going to be like meeting with members of Congress behind closed doors and stuff. But the uh, it's really interesting to kind of see like the media response to, or lack of response to this in some cases. Uh like it was, it was fascinating to me how like you've got high-ranking military people going in front of a congressional hearing under oath and literally saying like, "Yeah, we've not only are aliens There's some wild real, shit going on. they're here and they've been here for a long time, and the U.S. government has like retrieved fully intact alien ships, uh, et cetera, et cetera." And uh, and I can't just you know I and and the dude literally David Grush literally said like. I have names, I have exact locations, I have all the information, and I can give that to you in a secure compartmentalized information facility. Uh, and I'm happy to do that, right? He's like, I can't state that publicly on the record because – Also called you know, a skiff if you're you – know, A skiff, really cool. yeah. 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 Um, and so you know, he, like, he's like, I'll, I've got the receipts and I'll deliver them to you. I can't – you know, he can't just like yeah, announce all this shit to the world or he'll go to prison for the rest of his life for espionage, um, for revealing state secrets, right? But uh, yeah, it's been it's been pretty interesting, and it's kind of like cracked open the the door to all this stuff. But like <laughs> the fact that this happened, which in my mind is like one of the wildest things to happen in Congress that I could ever think of. Uh, and then on the front page of like the New York Times, it was like some Japanese pop star comes out as gay. <laughs> I'm like, I feel like <laughs> I feel like there's more important news closer to home. <laughs> What's crazy to me is that within like a what is it now basically a three month window or six month window you have congressional hearings on basically general artificial intelligence and aliens happening. I'm like the 2020s are turning out to be woo, quite a ride. What you know? a journey um, we are on. Yeah, and and also importantly, uh, the Defense Authorization Act just passed, which has a uh, 63 or 64 page uh, amendment in it from Chuck Schumer and that amendment that gives a 300 day deadline for government organizations and private organizations to turn over all uh, materials and information about non-human technology to, to the federal government. Uh, so, so, and, and there's kind of like, basically that what this kind of like uh, the angle that they're taking on all this is, is this is not about aliens. It's about government uh, transparency. Because mm-hmm. they're basically coming at it from the angle of the, the the Defense Department is blocking Congress from even asking questions about this stuff or interviewing people or whatever. And they're coming up with all kinds of ways to stonewall and prevent investigations. And they also have all kinds of just missing money. Like mm-hmm. they can't pass an audit. Congress will give them a bunch of money. And then they're just like, oh, I don't know where that went. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Anyway, money, please. Right. <laughs> um, and so by framing this thing as a like oversight and transparency issue. It's a budgeting issue, really. It's know? a budgeting issue. And it just happened. It just happens to be about aliens, mm-hmm. but it could have been about anything. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's going to be kind of ongoing, but they're kind of like this new bill gives like a, a, a grace period where if people turn over the stuff they have, then they're in the clear within this window. But if they don't turn their stuff in beyond that point, uh, or like within that window, then they'll be prosecuted, right? So like, it's it's pretty legit. It's very interesting looking at an actual law passed by Congress that that throughout the entire thing just continuously mentions technology created by non-human entities. Mm-hmm. Like that's a 
that's pretty wild. Weird times. So, yeah. So, yeah, anyway, we'll put, keep your eye on that, you know. Yeah, we'll definitely be circling back on that with any additional news as it comes out. Yeah. Um, and otherwise, studio news, we've just been working on Crash Nights 2 stuff. We just got boss fights wrapped up, which is a, we just wanted to kind of put a pin in that as like a, a milestone because a boss fight in a game is kind of the culmination of every other thing that you've got going on, right? Like you can't have a boss fight if you don't have combat figured out, if you don't have, you know, like a, a means of getting the player to the boss mm-hmm. in a way that's like compelling. makes sense, yeah, compelling. Um, and also just the the way that boss fights tend to work in games is like really like to think of it as a dance or like an mm-hmm. orchestra, which is normally if you're fighting regular enemies in the game, they're just kind of around, right? Like they don't, you they're, can just put them, you can just put them places. Yeah, they're in various locations and various combinations. And so there's not a, uh, there's not a concert feel to it, but a boss is more than just the entity that is being placed down. Like the actual boss, it's always, it's actually the arena that the boss is in also, yeah. right? Any really good boss fight typically makes extremely heavy use of the ground that it's on for purposes of either frustrating the player or even like modifying it, you know, as the boss kind of does their thing. Yeah. And even when you think of like Terraria and stuff, right, where you kind of, you mm -hmm. kind of govern what the arena is, so much of like uh, Terraria players' efforts go into building the boss fight. Building the arena. Yeah, building an arena for yourself that allows you to get in it, basically turn yourself into the the boss of the arena as opposed to the the boss having, right, or getting them out of position typically. Yeah, yeah. Which is like that just means that you know it's it having the having the sort of environment be part of the experience means like you can create much more interesting and nuanced interactions that only will really work in that context. Um, but then you can you know you can have a, a two or three minute fight with like story beats or dialogue moments happening throughout it, and like the boss will change phases and go and start doing something new partway through the fight. You know, and like all this cool stuff that. Would be just a – honestly, if if regular enemies had that level of complexity, it would just suck. Like it would, it would be sense. so annoying to mm-hmm. fight them. Um, you're, I think you're describing thing, Cuphead, you know? you know, which is – yeah. every, <laughs> every fight is which, – which is like – which was true. Like it was super fun, but after maybe like half an hour, I was like, this is it's just tight. boss fights. It's too hard. <laughs> it's yeah. Um, yeah, and so so we're really, we're really pumped about that, uh, getting – because that, that's kind of like – it marks an important moment in development where all of the core big systems are are in and and they're functioning. And then mm-hmm. going forward, it's just going to be like, oh, we want to do this one new thing. All right, that'll be like two hours of mm-hmm. dev time to get that hooked up. And that's good to go. So all the all the things going forward are going to be like a lot of these little, little features, little improvements and polish points. Um, and now we're getting into what we call our content push phase – which is blocking out all of the things that we want to have in the game now going forward and sort of gray boxing them, meaning like putting in versions of those things that mechanically work, but don't have all the visuals and sounds and everything else. Um, and we, and then we kind of slot those in and then, then it turns into this last bit of uh, development turns into, we call almost like a paint by numbers kind of thing. Like once we've blocked it all out, Start we the know, beginning and just go. Yeah, we know where everything is. We know everything's going to work. And then it's just, we just need refinement, art, sound, implementation, iterations, you know. Uh, and, it, you know, not too long, suddenly we'll just stand up and look around bleary eyed and be like, oh, oh like, uh, we're done. We did. <laughs> uh, so very exciting. Very exciting. Uh, all right. So, anyways, that's kind of like the couple big uh, news beats just aliens and boss fights. Yeah. Uh, so, we stuff. thought we'd. 
Yeah, so we thought we'd uh, mostly tackle questions on today's episode. You guys, uh, you guys ready? So ready? Yeah. All right. Uh, these questions come from our listeners over at podcast.pscotch.net. The highest upvoted question comes from Glorious Cashew, who says, Is official mod support something you're considering for Crash Lines 2? If not, do you think everything you've done with the Game Changer will make it more moddable? Also, hi, I've been listening for a bit, but I've never asked a question. Hello. I recognize Hello. the name, so yes. it must, yes. must be from Discord then. If Discord, yeah. yeah. I think uh, the official stance is that there isn't an official stance yet on modding. Um, however, you are 100% correct that a lot of our efforts in developing the Game Changer were also to make it possible for, if we wish, to do modding to be able to do so without dying, which is good. Uh, and then even if we don't do modding support in an official way, like through Steam Workshop, uh, it would be immensely easier for anybody else to do some kind of extension stuff to the yeah. game. Um, there was basically modifying, like, the existing game in terms of, like, how what the numbers are, what things are called, what the dialogue was, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, would be pretty straightforward just with the game contents because of how the game changer works and the, and the content that it generates. Um, cause it's basically just a big, really well-structured it would be file, right? Straightforward, but a lot. It would be a lot oh, yeah, without, without tooling to support it. It would be, yeah. it would be a lot of effort, if you're, but if you're trying you to walk through that JSON also, file. Well, yeah, but you don't have to also reverse engineer like how all the data goes yeah. in, right? Um, yeah. But for things like the actual like visuals and then even the world map, because the world map is like saved to this, you know, custom custom binary format to make it as concise as possible and stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but with our, our level head community reverse engineered how levels are encoded. Yeah. Uh, and that's also a wonky, you know, complex binary format that has no yeah, that, documentation whatsoever. Right? That impressed me because, oh, yeah, because yeah, the because the mechanism we use to compress the levels down and stuff, we didn't like get that from somewhere like we made it up yep you yep. know like it's fully. just raw it's just raw binary right it's just raw binary so it's just ones and zeros and if yeah for them to i mean and like there's a process that they'll go through you know where they like like get a level and then they'll like make some assumptions about what it is and then they'll, they'll make one change and then save see it and then see what changes in the binary and start to identify locate like memory locations in there and like how it works mm -hmm. uh which is pretty wild yeah, that's totally that, that's a thing. Yeah, so collectively, yeah. which is all to say that because the, like the files that make up, because you know, I think you can kind of think of like what we're delivering with Crashlands Two, or is we're basically delivering a game engine mm -hmm. that like runs Crashlands Two content, right? And then content, which for the map, for the rules, for all the care, for everything about like what's actually in the game, except for the raw visuals, but everything else actually has a a file that lives outside of the engine, right? That like describes that thing in some format. So it's like easy. It's not necessarily going to be easy to do, but it's easy to get to, right? Yeah. Um, and to work on. And then the one thing that people won't have just easy access. Think with the idea being that you could just you could just change that stuff. You could just like edit mm -hmm. it and then reboot the game, basically, right? The thing that's not true is is the images because those are actually baked into the game engine, basically, right? Right. So. To replace and those sounds. requires more effort because you can't just modify a file and be done. You'd have to do some very wonky stuff to try to change the file itself and try to do that without triggering Steam or an antivirus to be like, hey, this executable file has changed. <laughs> right. This is probably bad, you know. Uh, so that stuff gets a lot trickier. And, and so I think – which means that the short answer is basically that given that we have no specific plan to intentionally – 
uh, enable mods mm-hmm. than at currently. Then what that would look like at launch is that a huge swath of stuff would be accessible to people who are really into modding, who like nerd out about this shit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of it, which is again just the images basically, uh, is not. Um, right. Uh, and if we wanted to actually make it so people could do mods, then one of the, like, like intentionally, the question that always goes there is to what extent, right? When, when people, when a game company, um, actually endorses and supports mods, because what they, what they'll usually do is they'll add some layer to the game as an engine for how it basically interprets files. They might add some, some tooling They might take more of the content and break it out of the main game sort of file right mm-hmm. so that's in separate stuff that gets slurped up by the game when it boots so that they can all be just replaced with stuff right um, because of how game maker works there's a lot of limitations for image assets because if we just let you slurp them up automatically like out of a folder or something then game maker does a really bad job of doing that in a hardware economical way <laughs> so that mm. yeah the 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 long and short of, of why that's a problem is that typically when we have a like when we have a, a 2D game, we've got thousands and thousands of images, right? And uh, if each of those images was its own individual file, then your graphics card would just burst into flames because it, because like let's say you're looking at a scene in the game where there's like terrain on the ground, there's characters walking around, there's a couple hundred images usually displayed actually at once, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there'd be, yeah, be a few hundred like different images simultaneously on the screen. And if every time your graphics card wanted to render one of those, each frame, it would need to load the, the image from disk, Just slow. display it, and then unload it, and then load the next one, right? And so this, these are called texture page swaps, where it has to like load stuff from disk and whatever. So Or just from so, memory into the... Because you got your computer memory where things are stored in the, from the game, right? And then there's yeah, and you got your video graphics memory. memory, yeah. So yeah, VRAM. Yeah, because most of it is swapping between the two, and yeah, when so that's the idea of what a texture page is, which is having a whole bunch of images on one. It's basically just one big big PNG, right? Where all of your images have been slapped onto it, so that you only so have, you don't to, have do, to swap so much. Yeah, you only do one swap of that whole thing, and then the and then the video card knows where all the stuff is inside of there, right? And then it just draws like the one out of it. Yeah, um, but. But yeah. when we when we if you load images uh, sort of at runtime, then they're not being packed together into one texture page. They're they're just standalone sprites. And so if you did that, then you I mean it's it's totally possible to do it, yeah. but the game would just slow to a crawl because right. of the texture page swap burden. So you would, that's you would kind need of the challenge to make that. That's the main yeah. one. Yeah, right. that's the yeah. main sort of uh, technical feasibility thing. Um, but I think even with that, with that consideration in there, the reality is that uh, it's also a timing question. So some games they do launch with you know workshop support, right? Um, but kind of if you haven't picked up from what we're describing, really being able to fully support mods, um, yeah, intentional designed support. Yeah, intentional design support isn't a free. It's not like a checkbox. It's basically a, it's fully a data architecture and also a bunch of other problem solving stuff depending on your engine and yeah and some of it does make like if you do support some of those things some of it does make development easier like that's yes. definitely true and that's that's actually why things like because we could just like give access to the game changer and like give access to mm-hmm. the map editor because those are actually in game right and we we built those to make development easier and they that also means they would make modding easier mm-hmm. right it's the it's these other things though like that don't really make sense as much for modding like dealing with the raw images that are baked into the game and stuff, right? Um, That 
uh, we also have external tooling to support, and it's pretty complicated and yeah. and wonky, right? And we have a whole system to manage that is like it's a it's a good development system, but it's not a user friendly, uh, you know, end user system. Yeah. So but also, the, the, we don't necessarily want to make it so that you can just literally use the Game Maker engine as an engine and now just make a completely completely new thing. Yeah, right. No, that's not the intent, right? So I think yeah. I think it's where it comes down. Where it's like I think to me, mod support in many ways is a is a follow from a good launch, which is to say that if you have a game that the community is very in, like very very into it, because you have to have a community who is just fired up about the game in order for modding to be a worthwhile activity, um, then it can be a to me it's a follow on from initial launch, not a thing that you necessarily want to prioritize with the launch because it, again it requires work and it's the only it's the kind of work that will only make a difference in the long run for the game if the game is already successful okay let me let me ask you this sure. this is thing i've been thinking about with mods after watching kerbal space program 2 mm-hmm. uh and its turbulent launch mm-hmm. <laughs> um as well as just like thinking about skyrim right mm-hmm. which is which has been around now since 2000 Nine, eight or nine or nine. It's old. It's old as the hills. Um, so something kind of weird about modding is that it seems like once you have a game, a popular game with mods, it is nearly impossible for the developer to to release sequels in that franchise. I think I don't if, think that would be true for Skyrim. Yeah, as in, like, I don't think the yeah. mods. I think that's. Tr- I think it depends on what the mods are doing. When the mods are extending the game to make it better by adding stuff to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the case yeah. of Kerbal Space Program, then now the future game is – and basically if the content that's coming out is like all works together basically, right? And it, and it basically allows, it allows the community to now with thousands of people basically, right, keep on adding stuff to the game post-launch. Um, and if the modding system and the type of game supports doing that in a way that just makes the game grow, mm-hmm. then I then I agree because then because ha- now you're competing not just with that but also with the mod ecosystem, right? Yeah, you you got thou- tens of thousands of people uh, adding content to your old version of your game yeah. for, for free, and like you can't keep up with it. There's no way. But I think yeah, it's but, it's the question of what a know. sequel is, which is that you know. In the case of Crashlands, like you say, we had modding support for the original Crashlands for the last fucking seven years, right? It wouldn't matter because the changes that we're making are so enormous and fundamental on the design level, right? Like the difference with Kerbal Space Program is that they were just like, it's also putting rockets together. Yeah, it's just it's more one sandbox move to another one where the improvements are basically yeah. like the graphics are better, right? Is the well, that was the, yeah. Their intent was like better graphics and better performance. They they yeah. totally failed on the performance side of things. And it still doesn't look as good as modded KSP one. Yeah, exactly. Like, so like they, there are there are the graphics mods that people have made that look yeah. better than Kerbal Space Program. So, so I think it's just a right. different category of yeah. yeah. If it's like a, if it's a pure sandbox game, I, I do think. I mean, we saw this with Terraria. Terraria tried to make a sequel a while ago. Yeah, but think about like games that have like that have huge modding communities, right? If it's like all right, uh, Grand Theft Auto, where's the sequel? That's been out for like ten years. Skyrim. There hasn't like there were a bunch of uh, of Elder Scrolls games, and then Skyrim, mm-hmm. and then there hasn't been one in like twelve years. Oh yeah, and like RimWorld, Minecraft. Like there's all these games like they do incredibly well, and a big part of their success is like the community aspect of modding, like making evergreen content. But also, it becomes I think incredibly difficult 
for the the developers to figure out what's the like what's the next move in mm-hmm. this like you're saying Sam you got to you got at least something that's very different yeah i think it has know? to do with differentiation in a sequel yeah. which i think is is yeah. one of those things that is is hard to it's harder to design. I think it's a short version of it. It's like, you're not just taking the same thing you did before. And then the whole, like some of the gist of the recipe people talk about is like, you keep 70% of it the same and then you change like 20% and then you like add 10%. It's like some kind of rough thing, which is not at all what yeah, we did. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I, again, like, yeah. I don't know what that means. And so I think it's, I think for us, it was just like, okay, let's just take the spirit of the thing, uh, and reinterpret it given our new skill set, right? That was kind of the, the gist of the... Well, something that's been kind of interesting about working on Crash Ends 2 is that I think we did have way more things changed at the beginning. And over time, there's a lot of aspects of Crash Ends 2 that have actually drifted back toward the design of Crashlands 1. Yes. Uh, in ways that we like, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I guess we weren't that dumb back then. Like we did figure out some things that were actually yeah. kind of good ideas that still persist even in this environment. And, you know, we wanted to try some different things to see if we could do it better or find new avenues of thinking about those game systems. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately it, it kind of loops back around. Like it ends up looking similar to what we had. Yep. It's not the same, but it's going to be similar. Right. Yeah. yeah uh, but it feels, it just feels completely different, but I, I would actually take it different because you're kind of describing like these, there are these big games that have these huge modern communities and now they can't like make a sequel. Right. I don't think that's what's happening, though, actually. I think that's true for a very tiny subset of games. Mm -hmm. I think Kerbal Space Program is probably like, I don't even think it's the example of that. I think the reason they can't make a sequel is because they're doing a really bad job of running their business. (laughs) Production appears That appears to be the case. And (laughs) everything I've heard about how they've done their stuff, like, I think that's been historically true, right? But I think they're initially like like Skyrim and these other things, right? Like, and and Minecraft and all these, right? They don't need to make a sequel. Grand Theft Auto, Grand Theft Auto Five. There's a six now, right? I don't know what what we're on, but but the Grand Theft Auto franchise makes like a billion dollars a year, right? Minecraft probably still makes like a billion dollars a year, right? Um, and and the, they are treated as evergreen products. These things are still mm -hmm. updated. They get they get live ops support, you know, all Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. They tend to be online games. Skyrim is an exception, but Skyrim is like Doom, right? It's on every fucking thing <laughs> yeah. in the universe, right? And I don't think it's because like the, like the modern community uh, is a big part of why that thing just keeps thriving mm-hmm. everywhere. I think that's mm-hmm. definitely true, but I don't think that holds it back at all from a sequel because I think I think the modern yeah. community would be so jazzed for the sequel because if they can mod it still, right? Mm-hmm. Because then they get to go because like. Every time a new thing comes out, it becomes, a, you know, the, the blue sky. Everybody's trying to now have the yep. top. It's a new opportunity for you to take the stuff that – and basically, honestly, just steal everybody else's ideas, right? And be like, yeah, that mod that everybody loved in old Skyrim, like I made it for new Skyrim, mm-hmm. right? And like – That design that's in Breath of the Wild where everybody climbs everything and has a glider. Now it's in Skyrim. Yeah, exactly, like, yeah. Yeah, it so, would be dope actually. And if, it's, and if it's easier to do modding – in the new stuff and the outcomes are cooler and more interesting or whatever because the underlying game the is, is better yeah. is better right mm-hmm. then i think i think the modern community loves that enough and i think it's honestly i think it's really easy to get the modern community to my because they're basically early adopters that's like their whole thing yeah. right yeah. and they and they love they thrive on jank you know mm-hmm. so like so i would say it's probably really easy to get a modern community on board to something that makes modding possible for a franchise they already love 
Yeah. But so if I guess, the base guess, game doesn't differentiate itself enough yeah, then from the, the original one, then what's the point? Because then you might as well just go back to the original. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the, the base game needs, and this is this is where Kerbal Space Program 2 fell flat because they, they actually had their original uh, announced launch date was, I think, 2020. Yeah, it was a while it was ago. Like, yeah. It was like summer 2020, and then they and then they launched into early access in 2023 with like 10% of the features of Kerbal Space Program 1. And the stuff that they did launch was just totally broken. Yeah. Yeah. Like spa- your, your rocket would just wobble around like a like a wet uh, spaghetti noodle and just explode for no reason. Yeah, and the hardware like, requirements were just off the fucking charts. Yeah. It was running at like six frames per second with yeah. like a rocket with 20 parts. I mean, Have just the whole thing, into, just I, totally. I looked back into it a few weeks ago because I was like, oh, I wonder if they've actually hit into their – because they had – they. They'd publish their roadmap, right? Which is, mm-hmm. I mean, a very vague, you know, flashy roadmap of like the major features, right? Yeah. Uh, but it was like, I think it's like, the, there's like, th- there's like five or six items on that roadmap. And it wasn't until the third one, I think, where they're now, where it's now a different game, actually. And so a few weeks ago, I was like, oh, I wonder if they've made any progress. And there was literally no update information at all. And it, yeah, was, six, they, it was like had, six months post-launch or something like that, you know? Yeah, they had released some uh, some big bug fix patches. That's like good. where like the whole patch is just like, hey, here's 600 bug fixes. You know? mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's just pages and pages of bug fixes. But um, the concern I had, you know, and like, like you're saying, I haven't seen – uh, a, a lot of progress toward getting it up to feature parity with Kerbal Space Program 1. Not like we've been digging out um, for a long time. Yeah, and it's like, well, if if they have, if after this many years of development, if they're launching it riddled with bugs like that, yeah, and then, like, that implies that, and like, we, we, we learned this lesson a long time ago, and, like, we did the DevOps video and, you know, all mm-hmm. that stuff, but, like, you, you, you cannot cut corners mm-hmm. because it'll come back and bite you later like the bugs are still in there, and as they build and build and build, you end up with an unmaintainable yeah, process. Yeah, I mean, just because right. more and more costly to fix, and also yeah. if you're trying to do it now while they get, you already have a Players. very Ugh. mad audience, you know. That's yeah, because because you, you're trying to get features out, and now you've got like the players are upset, and like there's bugs that they're getting hit by. That you, for example, like one of the worst things as a developer is if you've got players being hit by by some bugs and and you know that like, okay, I could add a workaround for this bug, but actually there's a big systems level problem that will require weeks to fix and untangle to prevent this, to prevent like this whole suite of bugs mm-hmm. wholesale. But also you've got uh, a demand for like, okay, we need to get more features out or whatever. Like we got a big patch coming up or that kind of a thing. And so, so you have to just, in some cases, because of management pressure or whatever, you would have to just cut corners, do the Band-Aid fix, implement the new feature. And I've implemented that feature on top of this wobbly, shitty foundation. Mm-hmm. And it just it just keeps becoming a Jenga tower. And my assumption is that that's kind of what happened before they even launched Kerbal Space Program 2, is that like they, they built it on a shaky foundation. They launched it. It's full of bugs. Mm-hmm. And now they can't add features. But also there's so many bugs that they can't fix them. You know, the whole thing is just a... Well, I think it's also any anytime you see that kind of a thing, it's also it gives you an insight into the internal dynamics of the company, the people who mm-hmm. are building it, right? Because left to their own devices, programmers will gladly spend all of their time fixing bugs and like or just refactoring and refactoring making stuff, making things nice clean and, clean. and <laughs> easy to maintain, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And so it is the case that you don't want the balance of power to go all the way on the developer side because 
they're going to make a fucking bulletproof product in the end, but it's barely going to do anything. That doesn't do anything. Do anything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Because the best bug fix is just deleting everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But on, but on the other side, you're going to have your sort of management and design kind of push, which depending on the, on the company structure, that can occupy a lot of different roles and, and spaces, mm-hmm. right? But that, that's the one concerned or product management, or that, that's the, the part concerned with the actual feature set and mm-hmm. what's being delivered to the to the downstream user in the end, right? And if the balance of power goes all the way on that side, you have a bug riddled mess of because because for them it's just feature, 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 feature. Yeah, exactly. And so what you a a sign of like a of a well managed uh, project with a good balance of power between these sort of competing interests of where the time is going to go is that you have basically because they'll never get rid of the bugs if you're going to ship something. But they're going to be innocuous, right? They're just no big fucking deal when you run into them. You're like, oh, that was a little weird, <laughs> right? And the, but that's that's the entirety of the you know response that you get from those bugs. And there's a lot of features, but they all work together, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not excessive. There aren't big. There weren't big promises that then failed to deliver. You know, all that kind of stuff, uh, because everybody's actually working together and trying to find a way to pull each other towards a middle mm-hmm. that actually allows you to deliver something relatively low bug, mm-hmm. uh, relatively bug free with, with you deliver something people want that doesn't have too many bugs. That's it. That's like, that's yeah. the goal, right? Yeah. It's fine. If there's some, some, there's going to be some, there's, there's, there's going to be bugs. Yeah. yeah. There will be bugs. Yeah, there will be bugs. Movie. Uh, mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, uh, true, next true. question comes from Tim Conceivable, who says, what are the chances that you all will update level head with new content or finish cut features once Crashlands 2 is released. Sorry if this is something you don't want to answer, but I know a lot of us Levelhead fans are dying to know. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to say, very, very low. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, for a, a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, once Crashlands 2 is released, there's going to be a lot of Crashlands 2 more stuff. Work to do. Yeah. Probably another year or probably, probably for like a year afterwards. Um, unless it goes absolutely horribly, in which case we have a new problem and we've got to start working on the next game. Or yeah. if or, it goes um, absolutely spectacularly, in which case then we work on that for a good while. More. Or yeah. we'll just do whatever um, we want, which, you know, in that case could include a level head update if we f- just want yeah. to. Well, and that's, and that's, yeah, that's the scenario where like, because here, I think, I think we all are all in agreement that like, we all fucking love level head. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm so proud of it. so fucking fun because. Level head community is amazing. Yeah. And it's, I, I still like, I, I feel like, you know, as a game developer, I can die happy knowing that I made level head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I, I'm so proud of it. It's an amazing game. It's just great. The, the sales numbers did not materialize in a way that we hadn't that we had hoped it would make no sense from a business perspective for us from to spend biz- any energy on level head just sort of yeah to make it very yeah. clear it would not and be again, a thing that we'd be doing it would be to our detriment <laughs> it's the yeah, again yeah. unless things go so well with crash Lands 2 that we can treat ourselves to a little level head update <laughs> uh which you know isn't i'd say is you know it's it's unlikely but it's not out of, it's not like out of the question because it's a fucking great game and it's fun to work on. I love the community. Like I love everything about it um, as yeah, a person, think, you know. I think probably the yeah. short summary is that there are two things that would enable Levelhead Update. One is somehow Levelhead actually becomes really sort of successful on its own, right? Due to like surprise influencer sort of engagement or something. Uh, so that it becomes worth More us diverting our resources to, to, you know, to do that. Um, or like, so I said, we end up 
due to Crashlands 2 or due to some subsequent thing, right? Uh, end up with such a long runway where the where the our studio is just fine forever now, right? Or for at least a very long time. Um, that we could just do what we want. But those are yep. realistically the two scenarios that allow us to do that. Which has nothing to do with whether or not we want to, just to also Correct. be clear. We do. I mean, we want yeah. to. We want to update all of our games. Like, yeah. I want to, I still want to add stuff to Quadrupus Rampage, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I still want to get all the, yeah, get all the IEPs yeeted out of there so that we can, like, make it a standalone game, right? And yep. Get it on, get it on Steam, you know. Like, I don't think I don't even know if anybody would buy it, but I I want it to actually to be available to people. Yeah, it's I awesome. actually, I actually, I've always had ever since we launched Crash Into Two, I've always had this kind of fantasy of uh, something called like the Butterscotch Arcade or mm-hmm. Butterscotch Classic, something. Where yeah, you, like, you worked take on that all, a while ago. For I did work on it for a little while. Yeah, just like as a proof of concept, but basically like take take all the smaller games, whether it's like Quadrupus Rampage, Roid Rage, Flop Rocket, you know, like some of these, or even like Freeway Mutant. Especially the jam games and stuff, right? Yeah, some of these jam games and stuff and like roll them all into one app. uh, And then we kind of found that 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 would in some cases be interpreted as a an app store and would not be allowed Mm -hmm. to be published on mobile. Uh, And it's a really big technical development. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It would take it far longer yeah. to do. Yeah. Like that's just something that would be like, oh, it'd be fun to do. But then of course you gotta justify and it's like especially as the studio expands and we get more and more full-time people, et cetera, it's like, all right, if we take our development team and we just we just fuck off and go do this weird thing for like three months while everybody else is like, um <laughs> what, what are we doing here? Right. Uh yeah, it's the reality you know, of the cost of running a running a studio that's an actual you know business where everybody's getting paid and we have benefits and all that kind of stuff. Right? Is the monthly the monthly cost. burn just keeps getting bigger and it's uh, and it's a big horrible number. You know, it's like every, it's, big. It, it's just it's just big. <laughs> it's so it turns out supporting this many people is expensive. Yeah, it is because uh, really, like because we're you know we're over here and like we're not we're not paying like Netflix salaries or any of that kind of shit. Right? We're like. Uh, Right. We're trying to we're trying to do the best that we can by ourselves and our the rest of our team, right? Um, but we're not we can't be competitive with those entities. But then when I look out, but I know how much it costs even in the, under that scenario, right? To have this with our small team, with, with our, our level eight of person, yeah. eight full time people, and mm-hmm. a few part timers, right? And and which is a just a tiny company, right? Yeah. Tiniest. And it costs <laughs> so much to run this thing. And I'm out there looking at like even a 30-person team, yep. you know? And because that means it's going to cost like five times as much or you know, four times as much basically, mm-hmm. right, to run it. And I'm like, how? How are you yep. bringing in enough I mean, I to rem- support this shit? That's crazy. Mm-hmm. I remember it was quite – it was a while ago. It was, it was I think around the time that we launched Crashlands. And I was like – I was so psyched about how well it did and like – and and the, the possibilities of like potentially expanding the studio and like the money coming in and stuff. And then, and I remember I just like, I don't know, on accident, I stumbled across some numbers about like how much money does a typical McDonald's franchise, yeah, like yeah. A, a single McDonald's bring in a year. And it Profit? just like blew it like in revenue. In revenue yeah. And it just blew our Crashlands numbers out. Yeah. <laughs> Well, because because the revenue is what pays everybody, right? The profit is is excess money, right? Right. The profit is lower, yeah, yeah. of course. But the, uh, but the revenue means that they that 
if they're bringing in a few million dollars, like that's what they have to pay everybody for the year, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like the typical McDonald's store, you know, brings in like two some two point something million dollars a, a year, right? And you, and you think like, wow, that's it's a lot. That's so then it's fun. like, all right, well, but you need like there's a bunch of people in there, and they and, and you got to buy all the and despite food paying and, them notoriously yeah. poorly, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, yeah. and it's possible that, that money it's just million dollars a profit, you know, yeah. and that. You know, they could, they probably could be paying people like five times more and still make plenty of profit, mm-hmm. you know, but, but the, the fact remains like, like running any kind of a business of any size, man, that burn rate really just, Ooh. really just gets away from you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a lot. Uh, Scale is so, expensive. Yeah. So what, a, say, anytime we were like, what, what, are, what should we be putting our time into? We have to take into account that it costs a, a, lot, a lot to put our time into things. Yes. Um, uh, and that, that's true no matter how – and it's also true if you're an individual because, like, the cost is still your time, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's really easy to look at that and be like, well, the, the financial cost of that is free if you're not paying yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the only resource you actually have is your time, yep. right? And so it's not free. It's very I mean, if expensive. money was no object, there's a good chance we would actually still just be adding content to level head. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. So, you know – like well, because we also it's so, much easier, it's so much easier than building Crashlands too, right? And very oh, yeah. satisfying out of the gate because you get working a on a thing instantly. that already exists is yeah. way It's always easier. better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. Of course, like once Crashlands 2 is out, it'll be far – it'll be very satisfying to add content exactly. to that. Well, and that's there. part of the problem too, exactly. Because yeah, once Crashlands 2 is out – because now the question is, well, do if – we, if we're just doing what we want, do we want to put stuff into Crashlands 2 though? You know, because the answer is my, yes. My answer is yes, 100%. Yeah, and so now if we want to be – if we could just choose and do anything – Crashlands 2 is out. The problem there is that, well, that's probably where we would want to do stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. If we got two games out that we like, well, we yeah. got several now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to pick so. our favorite child, and that's the one we're going to do, you know? <laughs> so. Yep. Uh, all right. Next question comes from Fraser, who says, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Steam wish, Steam wish list numbers are undoubtedly correlated with sales. So does asking people to wish list the game also increase sales? Or developers good harding on an especially visible metric when efforts would be better spent on less quantifiable outcomes. So I would say this is different because wish lists are part of the algorithmic back background that determines whether your game gets shown to people. In other words, uh, getting so, more wish lists lets you get more eyeballs, which are a different metric entirely, right? It's not just yeah, and I'd say wish lists. Wishlist isn't your measure. Uh, sales is your measure, but you can't get those until you launch the game, yeah. right? Um, and so, wishlist is wishlist is basically a proxy for sales, and we use it as the objective. Yeah. It's a leading stage, a leading indicator, basically, for success of the product. However, to the point, it is true that the more you, of course, you know, ask for wishlist and put that whole you know call to action up front, you will get get more of them, right? Just by pushing on that concept. Um, and so what you do see, and I think there's actually just a game, game discovery uh, newsletter article about this, is that the the total amount of wish lists that people are getting is going up over time, actually. Yeah. But the point is like... But the value that, of a... The likelihood of a, wish, of a given wish list converting to a paying player at launch is going... It it's not going go down. I think no, it's, just really, go down. it's just really wide. Did it go down? It's extremely wide. Yeah, it's, it's just extremely really wide. wide. So it's anywhere from basically like, you know, 10% of your wish list total to more than 100%, which, you know, means right. it's kind of a fucking useless number at the end of the day. Right. Really. You get like 50,000 wish lists at launch, you launch or before launch, you launch your game and you get 250,000 sales. Yep. That happens. Yep. 
And so <laughs> this, uh, because that, that the reality of how it relates to the end product, it is correlated. And it's the only way that you can get an idea of do people, are people interested in this? Does it seem to be resonating? Which is a good, it's like the only metric that you can use for that. Um, then and like, it, and people have to expend effort to do it, right? So I think yes. any any metric where you're trying to gauge people's interest, um, you just have to be careful what the incentives are, right? But I think the, the nice thing about yes. a wish list is that the incentive for a, a of a player to wish list something, there's only one incentive, which is they want to know when the game is out. Yeah. That's literally yeah. the only reason, yeah. right? Yep. Uh, and so that means if they do it, it's either – or it's because they've been convinced that they should, right? Those are the <laughs> kind of two things. But it's really hard to convince somebody they should do it if they don't want to, because like there's no way for a person like we could we won't even like if, if all of our podcast listeners right we would love it if you would go wishlist Crashlands too right, but if you don't we don't fucking know that there's no way for us to know that there's no way for us to pressure you individually to doing it because we can't tell if you did you know mm-hmm. so, I, so I think but you can also game the system by basically like buying wishlists in effect right by mm-hmm. by creating be creating external which is also why you know Steam tries to crack down on that whenever they can. Um, but so given though, that on average, the only incentive is the dri- the user driven incentive of wanting to have that game at some point or consider having it once it launches, uh, it's a pretty good metric for interest. As Sam said, it does correlate with mm-hmm. launch success, but from like a numbers, like how many wish lists give you how many sales kind of question uh, Very rough. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that is so wide that you can't meaningfully use it as a metric to as, to answer the question. Will it be successful enough though when it launches, right? You can get a rough sense of like, are people interested enough to engage with this because they want it so yep. that there actually is an audience. We don't know for sure if it's big enough to support the development of the game, right? But, but at least we know that there is an audience there. Um, but that's all, that's all made more complicated by, as Sam said, the, the algorithm system, which is actually the goal. The goal for us is, and I think we're talking about this a lot, right? Where like the most important things you can do are not get some press outlet to write mm-hmm. about your game or to get a specific influencer to do it. It's, it's always to like get the Steam pop-up, get front page get store, store treatment to on whatever the store is. Because those just have so much more reach and power than anything else you mm-hmm. can do. So all of our efforts, all of our wishlisting efforts are, are geared towards that. We actually saw that this week with we finally hit a high enough threshold of driving our own wish list into Crashlands 2 that mm-hmm. Steam put us into the discovery queue and kind of gave us this yep. new, much higher baseline of uh, views and wish lists than we had mm-hmm. before. It increased our wish li- daily wishes by about eightfold. Yeah. 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 So there, so there's these there's these points where like once you hit that number of wish lists, your game has now suddenly reached a new level of exposure that's that Steam will start showing it mm-hmm. uh, more and more and more, right? And that's something we kind of found that there's a there's a positive feedback loop and a negative feedback loop, and you can also see this. There's a, a website. I don't know if it's still running, but Steam Likes, which was a website oh, yeah. where yeah, where you can look up your you can look up a game, and then it it just tells you how many other games are pointing to my game. Because mm-hmm. when you're looking at a game, there'll be a little section that says other games like this, yeah. right? And what that really is, is it's it's an indicator of the algorithmic exposure that Steam is giving to your game. So what we found was like, uh, in, in many cases, like we had just an incredibly difficult time getting Levelhead to show up in on other games. Uh, our Steam likes was just always perpetually low, right? And uh, with Crashlands, it was much higher than than Levelhead, right? And so, so there's all these still kind of like it's still kind of a, basically good for an indie sort of vibe. But then you look at some of the indie breakouts and the amount, like it's again, this is all log scale shit, right? So that's what we talk yeah. about, like 
you hit these different tiers of these feedback loops and the success proportionally is yeah, just by 10 X or whatever. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. Right. And so it's, it's, it's very, I think it's important to note that when we're trying to do some of these kind of lever things, these judo lever things with say like a, a, you know, a daily deal that also points to crash lines too, whatever else, that it's almost not even the, that exact moment that we care about so much as it is the cumulative long-term effect of having had a large spike. Right. And it's likely that this sort of this big, this big um, benefit that we've gotten from being put back in this discovery queue, it will fade. There's no way it's not going to fade over time. There's, there's limited traffic to Steam, right? And so if we're not, we're not going to maintain that level of hotness that we had from the amount of traffic we are from the daily deal, right? But there's the question of where does it settle? Does it settle back at the exact same amount we were at before, which was good, but can does it, it settle bottom out higher? Does it does higher? It, yeah. yeah, does it settle like two times higher? Because two times higher over the course of, you know, a long time before a launch means just tremendous more, like a tremendously higher amount of attention on the game in total, yep. right? Yeah, or is there a point at which like things slow down to a point where Steam says, oh, well, we're not going to put you in the discovery queue anymore, Yeah, right? exactly. Because again, there's like, there's a positive and a negative feedback loop where <laughs> if your game is already getting tons of traction and people are coming into it from other sources and whatever... Uh, and you, if you've already got like 200,000 wish lists or something, then Steam basically, like their algorithm sees that and it gets dollar signs in its eyes. Mm -hmm. And then the algorithm is like, this is going to be a big one. This mm -hmm. is going to, this is going to move some units. I got to make sure more people see this. Yeah. Right. And so it just gets shown to more people. But then the inverse is true. If you come in and, you know, if, if you've had your game up, uh, if you had a store page up for a couple of months and over that time, you've only accumulated like a thousand wish lists or something. Then mm -hmm. Steam sees that and Steam basically just says, yeah, no, nobody's going to play this. And then, <laughs> yeah. Therefore, I will not show it to anyone. <laughs> and so- You got to climb out of that hole. Basically. You got to climb out of the hole. And then once you're out, you can you can start to ramp up. But man, it's a real tough climb, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that's 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 how we're thinking about wish lists right now. Mm -hmm. now so we have one final quick question. Let's go to round out the episode, which is from Retro Banana Man NL, who says, it might be my bad, but every time I hear you guys say co-pilot for docs, I hear dogs. Mm -hmm. I get very excited that somebody would have made that and then realize it is not for dogs. <laughs> so I don't know what a co-pilot for dogs would be like, but I think that's just us. That's just uh, say, yeah, that's just a person. <laughs> you are the co-pilot. The, the dog, dog is the pilot. Uh, and I'm the co-pilot. I'm okay. just here to make sure. Well, I guess the that's dog the idea, though. Is when does AI take your job as the dog's co-pilot, so that mm -hmm. we have an AI co-pilot for dogs? I mean, a better question yeah. is where is this where is this ship going that has these two pilots? Okay, because yeah. go that's a, going on a going walk. To park is it? A, yeah, is it a park ship? What kind of ship is it? Because mm -hmm. the reality is, like, when you're building code, co-pilot for code is all about it's about delivering code projects, right? Co-pilot for a dog. All about the journey. Well, yeah, where are you going? What's this? You're just happy to be here, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, dogs don't care about delivering products. They they just they just want to get that stick. They just want to so roll in a thing. It was the thing, right? If a co-pilot <laughs> is about trying – you're trying to get from point A to point B, but dogs don't give a shit about getting to point B. They just want to hang. You know what I mean? Well, they'll get to, they'll get, they'll, they'll get to point B if something smells interesting over there. Very you know? food motivated. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe – Maybe Copilot for Dogs is more about treat acquisition streamlining. There you go. You know, mm -hmm. something like that. Yep. So we'll have to do more research into that and we'll report back if yep. we uh, yep. we find anything. So 
That's all the time we have for this week. We'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Sampa DaCosta, for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, just go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. And as always, head on over to Steam and give us a wish list on Crashlands 2. As we just discussed, it helps, you know, boost our uh, algorithmic exposure and... And it'll help us get a good, successful launch out there. So we'd appreciate that. Thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.